Well, I always think that the preacher's best introduction is his text. And we're looking this evening at Habakkuk and chapter 3 and verse 2. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath remember mercy. Having worked with yourselves over some length of time in connection with the open-air preaching, I know very well that there are of you here this evening who well understand that without the presence and power of God, the Holy Spirit, we can achieve nothing. But remember those words of the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples, without me ye can do nothing. And as we go on in the Christian life and in service to our Lord Jesus Christ, those, that word nothing rises from lowercase letters to capital letters. And as we go on a little further, they become even larger. And we're looking at the situation. We see what is going on around us. We can do nothing. We are absolutely helpless of ourselves. But the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, spoke those words so that we might be encouraged, so that we might have the right source of power for the work, so that we might be looking unto Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith, so that we might go on in his strength and do great things for God. Dalimore's book on Whitfield is a scholarly but warm account of the 18th century wonder of revival. Whitfield's first sermon on the 27th of June, 1736, resulted in 15 conversions. How we pray, dear friends, for one conversion in our congregations these days as a result of the preaching of the gospel. And indeed, one conversion is such a marvelous thing that a sinner should be translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. We cannot accomplish it. God alone can change the heart and give that true repentance and faith. So it's not surprising that Whitfield, his next sermon, was on the subject of new birth, the spiritual new birth, as opposed to baptismal regeneration as though the outward ordinance of itself could accomplish 
spiritual change. That sermon closed many Anglican pulpits to Whitfield. He was shut out. The message, the true gospel, was not appreciated. But that shutting out resulted in even further wonderful blessings. As Whitfield commenced an open-air witness, preaching not to pass us by as we do today, but crowds of thousands who had gathered to hear something of Jesus Christ, to be faced with the reality of personal sin and guilt, and yet to discover from the preaching of this man that God had provided an answer, a wonderful answer for worthless sinners such as we. And you know that there was wonderful spiritual awakening that took place. Now, in necessity, a precondition of spiritual awakening is a hearing of the word of God. When I say a hearing of the word of God, that may sometimes come by personal reading of the Bible. But in the main, as you know, it has come as a result of testimony. A man speaking to his neighbor with respect to the things of God. A woman speaking to her family with respect to the wonderful grace of God manifest in the Lord Jesus. Or in situations such as this, this evening, dear friends, where an unconverted person hears the truth as it is in Jesus and understands, this is for me. God is speaking to me. I need this change of life. I need this Jesus Christ of whom the Bible speaks. And so we know that it is God's work to revive his church. I put a simple question to you this evening. How long is it since you prayed for revival? Now this is the great need of our time. This prayer of Habakkuk is a prayer for our own day. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. You can remember those words, can you not? And bring them into your prayers. And know as you are doing so that this is such a significant prayer that it lies here in the Holy Scriptures. The prayer of this godly man must be remembered by all succeeding generations because it was a prayer that met the need of the days in which the prophet was living. That God should hear in heaven his prayer and answer to the need that he saw about him that was breaking his heart. 
revive thy work, he prays. Now, what is it then, dear friends, to revive? That's our first question. And the answer to this might be a a little of a surprise to some people, not necessarily in this congregation, but others that would regard themselves as evangelical Christians. Often, reviving of the church is confused with spiritual awakening in a nation. But you see, these are two different things. Where there is reviving in the church, we might well expect as a consequence spiritual awakening in our communities. Because when God's people are revived, then they are more diligent in holy exercises, have a greater concern for their neighbor's salvation, and are motivated to share the word like those early disciples in the New Testament church who, even when they were persecuted, went everywhere speaking of Christ, preaching the truth. So what is it to revive? I suggest to you that it is to preserve spiritual life in the body of God's people. That was what the prophet was praying for. That God would look and see the needs among the covenant people and answer to those needs by the bestowing of his Holy Spirit. I say this because the Hebrew word that we are dealing with here translated revive, it means keep alive. Keep alive. So it is somewhat different to regeneration, being born again of the Spirit of God, which is to make alive. If you're a true believer here this evening, that is as a result of the work of God the Holy Spirit in your heart in regeneration. He found your heart dead to the things of God, but he imparted this most excellent and precious spiritual life. And you've been changed ever since. Repenting of your sin and looking to Christ and seeking to serve Christ in holiness of life and speaking of Christ and not being ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. There's an excellent illustration with respect to this matter of which we speak. If you are down at the beach and somebody has got into difficulties there in the water and are drowning, then the lifeguard comes and swims out and lays hold upon them and he brings them back to the shore. But you see, when he gets to them back to the shore, they are half drowned, unconscious. And about to die. About to die. But the lifeguard knows his, he knows his business. And he applies what we, we call artificial respiration. He gets the lungs working properly. And this one 
who was almost dead recovers. So looking upon a dismal scene in connection with the church of God, the prophet prays, revive thy work. We are dying, Lord. The truth is disappearing from our pulpits. The concern that we have with respect to the the preaching of the truth is not shared by so many today. The reality indicated in connection with the drowning man is a perishing church. The real answer to which is the imparting of spiritual life with renewed force before that spiritual decline should be terminal. Now evidently there is human responsibility in this. People might think, oh, it would be nice if we had a a revival. But you see, the scriptural response to that, the Savior's response to that, is, what are you doing about it? How earnest are you about this spiritual reviving? So there is that letter in the the book of Revelation, if you have your, your Bible open. Turn to Revelation in chapter 3, which is the source of this particular uh, quotation here. The Apostle John is commissioned to write to the the seven churches. And you know in connection with these these churches, with the exception of one, there's always something that is mentioned that needs to be remedied. There is human responsibility in connection with this preservation of spiritual life from spiritual decline. And so we read here at the opening of of chapter 3, these first three verses, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. You see very clearly there. This emphasis upon human responsibility in this matter of the reviving of the church. Things are not good at Sardis, but the Lord Jesus Christ says to his people, hold fast, repent, watch. He lays a responsibility, indeed a number of responsibilities, upon them. But here Habakkuk's prayer reminds us 
that there is an essential ingredient which is beyond our control. This vibrancy of spiritual life is not something that we can enact of ourselves. And Habakkuk looks at the situation and he is speaking to God. Speaking to Jehovah, the faithful covenant God of Israel, his people. And his prayer is, revive thy work. We see the need in our own souls, do we not? How often have we prayed for the refreshing of our souls by God the Holy Spirit. We feel jaded with the various conflicts and difficulties, trials and temptations that we have faced. And we know that we have a a personal need to pray for reviving and refreshing. And what a wonderful thing it is. Like when we are so thirsty and nearly exhausted with the, the labors of the day. You, you think of the farm laborer there out in the heat of the sun. And how exhausting working in those conditions is. And how glad he is to, to drink deep of the, the drink which is brought to him. And he feels refreshed and, and empowered to go back to the work like a giant. And so it is. Habakkuk sees the need all around him. And consequently he sees the need for himself and for his fellow believers. And he's praying to the Lord for that refreshing of God, the Holy Spirit, to preserve spiritual life. When we look around us in our nation today and see what has taken place in our lifetime, the deterioration of this country of Britain, known for centuries as a Christian country, we cannot but be alarmed and concerned and pray that God would revive his work. Think about all of these church buildings in Britain where the gospel was preached Sunday by Sunday, morning and evening in the midweek. This very gospel that we hold dear, it was there and preached with vigor. And what's the situation now? Men preaching messages that undermine the authority of the Bible. This dreadful intrusion of what we call liberalism, not in the political sense, but in the the religious sense, this liberalism which came into the church uh, beginning in the 18th century, but particularly strongly in the 19th century. And the rewards of that being, uh, if we can call them uh, rewards, adverse rewards, uh, in, in the 20th century. 
the beginning, the first 50 years of last, uh, last century. So that we end up with a situation where people in these evangelical churches, what were evangelical churches, do not believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. They do not believe in the necessity of the atonement of Christ, the death of Christ, to make amends for sin, to suffer the curse of the law, that we might freely receive that forgiveness from God. And they look upon the Lord Jesus as a moral example and no more. My dear friends, you know I trust that if Christ is no more than a moral example, we are all perishing in our sins because we cannot follow that example of Christ in our own strength. So Habakkuk's prayer reminds us of this essential ingredient beyond our control. He's looking away from self and he's looking to God. And he's praying to God, the covenant God, Jehovah God, revive thy work in the midst of the years. Our preaching cannot be effective without it. What can I do for your souls this evening, dear friends? Without God, the Holy Spirit at work, applying this truth to your hearts, you're not benefited at all. And regarding conversion, this turning from sin to Christ, this repenting of sin, believing in Christ, What can the preacher do about that? What can you do about that? Nothing of ourselves because there is an absolute deadness in our souls to be overcome. We are dead in trespasses and in sins by nature. That was a truth well illustrated as recorded in 2 Kings in connection with a circumstance after the death of Elisha. Read there in 2 Kings 13, 20. And Elisha died and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. And it came to pass as they were burying a man that behold, they spied a band of men and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived And stood up on his feet. Dead you see. Brought to life. And so the prophet prays. Revive. Thy work. As Matthew Henry puts it. Make known thy power. Thy pity. Thy promise. Thy providence. So we pray. We magnify God. We glorify his name. We show that our trust is in him and not in ourselves. Well, what do we desire? To be revived. That's clear enough in our text also. O Lord, revive thy work. According to the great reformer and commentator John Calvin, he is praying for the reviving of 
Israel. In Isaiah 45, 11, Israel is referred to as the work of my hands. When languishing in exile for their sins, the prophet prays that God will revive his people. Now, the northern kingdom, Israel, had already gone into captivity in B.C. 721. Habakkuk is dated round about 626 B.C. And afterwards, in B.C. 587, Judah, the southern kingdom, will also go into exile. Seventy years. Enough to see off an entire generation. And some of the generation after them. Thy work. God's covenant people. All that has been done. The great names of Moses. Lie behind. Great prophets. Like Isaiah. And what then can be done? Revive thy work. May the Lord preserve us, dear friends, from a my work mentality. I mean by this an unseemly preoccupation with personal esteem and reputation. What have we to do with such a thing? In the sense that we are laborers, we have our work to do. And it is ours, our responsibility to do it. We do not appreciate, we do not support a let go and let God mentality or methodology. For we see so clearly in the New Testament administration of the truth to sinners that the Lord Jesus Christ sent out his apostles to preach. They ordained elders in the church. Clearly set before our view is this instrumentality. But because there is an instrumentality, we must not lose sight of the fact that the work is God's work. Revive Thy work. And as we engage in more and more strenuous endeavor in prayer and witness on our part, we must do so with this mindset. The work is God's, but he is pleased to use us. Friends, I, 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 cannot, I cannot quantify, I, I, I cannot get to the extent of it. The joy, the blessing that you or I will enjoy forever. Knowing that God the Holy Spirit used us to be instrumental in this or that person. Their conversion. Just think of that. 
whether it be members of our own family or people in the workplace or people of the place of Ripon or Stockton on Tees to have been used, to have been instrumental in that person passing from damnation, certain damnation, to an eternity of glory. How wonderful. But you see, we do not account it to be our work. We do not say, my work. We say, thy work. God has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. But there must be strenuous endeavor on our part. Our souls must be chastened for our lack of prayer. Or perhaps for prayer, but not that effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man that availeth much. Something missing. What an example the Apostle Paul said. He wrote to Philippians in his letter to the Philippians there in chapter 1 and verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. What a privilege, dear friends, to find our lives extended beyond the life expectation of our grandparents and go beyond 60 years to 70 years and by the grace and power of God beyond that and in a degree of fitness to be able to do what most of our grandparents generation would never conceive of once they got past the age of 65. What resources God has placed at our our disposal to go on and on in this wonderful service with respect to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But you see, we could not go on and on with a good heart in these things. In days such as we live in, a wicked and adulterous generation, in the fullest sense of these words, terrible standards being accepted from our parliament and downwards in our land. We couldn't go on. If the strength to go on had to be found from our human resources. And so we look to God. And we pray, revive thy work. Not my work. Thy work. That's what makes it so wonderful, is it not? It's not something out of our own heads, out of our own imaginations but revealed to us in the inspired word of God what is needful. How sinners must hear of Christ 
and how they must repent of their sins and seek the Lord while he may be found. And what a wonderful message it is. For the Savior calls, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. The peace, the peace that passes understanding. If you're a believer here this evening, you know the reality of that. And how wonderful it is when Satan would accuse us. When we would accuse ourselves. When our own hearts would rise up and say, yes, but you've thought this. You've done that. Look at the state of your life when measured by these perfect standards of God. Our case is hopeless. But you see, the Lord Jesus Christ has answered to all of that. And so our motivation and our hope rest in the fact that the work in which we are engaged is God's work, thy work. Oh, how this quickens the prayer of this godly man, Habakkuk. Thy work. I'm not not praying for my own honor, my own things, Lord. I'm not praying for things of a merely temporal significance. I'm not praying for things that are of a mere temporary significance. But I'm bringing before thee, Lord, this whole matter of thy work. You see, it is the body of God's people that is to be revived. And it is sinners that must be regenerated. And a revived church is God's preparation for spiritual awakening. And even the dead, those spiritually dead, hear the call and come to God in Christ. So this is a prayer inducing thing. The first statement in this third chapter of Habakkuk is a prayer of Habakkuk. Despite all of the discouragements and friends, when you go back to chapter 1 and you look at those opening verses, what discouragements? Where is their comfort here? The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee a violence and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me. And there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore long judgment proceedeth. The preacher could take each statement of that and illustrate it from our own times. Such has been the deterioration and degeneration in our land. But still there is hope. For the work is God's work. So when God speaks to his prophet. The prophet says there in verse 2 of chapter 2. And the Lord answered me. And you see there in verse 4 what he says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. 
Here is the very heart of the gospel that you might well expect to find in the epistle of uh, Paul to the Romans or the epistle of Paul to the Galatians, getting to the very heart of the gospel. What is the gospel message all about? And is it not about this wonderful truth that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, unworthy sinners such as we find an acceptance with God whereby we are pronounced just in his sight, just before him, righteous. Because the righteousness of Christ is placed to our account. Habakkuk does not say, as Matthew Henry comments here, remember our merit, but Lord, remember thy own mercy. That's what it's all about. And a wonderful strength comes with truths such as this. Not our own merit, but thy mercy. Think about David. After he has committed adultery with the wife of one of his most faithful captains in his army. Think about that. When after shrugging it off and forgetting it and seeking to bury it, the prophet comes to him and says, Thou art the man. And he's smitten in his heart. Yes, indeed, I am the man. I'm guilty to the heights of heaven with respect to what I have done. Merit. Personal good works. Could that ever come into his justification before Jehovah? Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. But you see, he understands the doctrine of justification by faith alone. In God's mediator alone, he knows what he must do. And he must turn from all of his Waywardness, he must turn from all of his hiding of the truth and he must turn to God in the one only mediator between God and men whom we know to be Jesus Christ. Well, think about the Apostle Paul. Reflecting upon the life that he had lived before the Damascus Road. Dear friends, if you had in your life that record, hating Christians, persecuting Christians, having them put to death, but no, you don't need that in your life to see the desperation of what you are of yourselves. You only need to call to mind your personal sins before you were saved. And see the direction in which you are going. And if you had not been saved, my friends, where would you be now? In what sins would you have indulged? How reckless would you have been before God? And God has intervened and answered to all of that. He saved you from a multitude of iniquities. That you would have plunged into. And so. With the prophet. You pray. 
revive thy work. And what a wonderful thing that is. When this or that believer goes backward from God, backsliding as we call it, on a scriptural basis, you plead with them, you pray with them. Things seem to get no better. And then a day comes when they come to you and they say, you're right, you're right. I'm so glad that you persisted to show to me that I was in the wrong. That I needed to confess my sins and needed forgiveness of my sins. What a wonderful thing it is, dear friends, when God the Holy Spirit works and takes this word, whether read or whether brought to one's attention by some Christian friend, or whether it be the preaching, the exposition of the word, just as we are engaged in this evening. And that word comes with power into the soul. And the black backsliding one is retrieved. Accepts, yes, I am at fault. I have been wandering again like a lost sheep. And the call of Christ is heard. Come unto me. Return to me. And so not only is this a prayer-inducing consideration, thy work, it is also a courage-imparting thing. We look around this world today, you read the missionary reports, you see the kinds of things that Christians are experiencing. Members of their own family being macheted or shot before their own eyes. And you think, how do these Christians cope with that? Or thrust into a dark prison, tortured and so on, and you think, how? Do these Christians cope with this? Thy work. Thy work. You see, this is a courage-imparting statement. Thy work. The work of God. The work that he alone can do and the work which he completes. This is a courage-imparting thing. The case of Jonathan comes to mind in 1 Samuel 14 when times were hard and the enemy Philistines were in the ascendancy, if not domination. We read then, said Jonathan to his armor bearer, Behold, we will pass over unto these men and we, we will discover ourselves unto them. If they say thus unto us, tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and will not go unto them. But if they say thus, come up unto us, then we will go up. For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. Well, you know the end of that particular story and the victory that was won on that particular day. Because they trusted that they were engaged in the work of the Lord 
thy work. It's not ours. God will look after his work, whatever the cost might be to us. Well, a little more briefly, let us answer this question. When shall God's work be revived? We'd like to know the answer to that, would we not? When will it be that God will act in power and revive his church? Well, the prophet says, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make no. What years are these? Well, the next statement tells us, in wrath, remember mercy. In unpromising times. When it looks as things are all over for the people of God. When they are so crushed, when they are so marginalized. Remember mercy. We can empathize with Habakkuk the prophet. The times were not good then. He can speak of drunkenness, immorality, violence, idolatry. Chapter 2 there, verse 15 and following. All this among God's professing people. Those who regard themselves as the servants of Jehovah. Drunkenness, immorality, violence. Idolatry. Did you read those statistics about, about Christians in connection with how many Christian men access pornography? Nearly 50%. Now, I don't know what the particular definition of Christian was in connection with that, that research, but at least it shows you that people who profess to be Christians have a problem with this particular matter of pornography. All this among the professing people of God. Really unpromising times, dear friends. And yet the prophet is praying, revive thy work. In times of judgment. When we were young in the faith, we were glad to be rescued from this world. As we continued in the faith, faith, we became sad to see the deterioration in connection with Christianity in the United Kingdom. Now that we are old, the times are very bad. I remember a dear Christian uh, lady much older than uh, myself who became an adopted grandmother in, uh, in our family. We met her when we were just just shortly after we were married. Uh, she was born in 1898. And by the time we knew her, she had lived through two world wars. What was her most recurrent concern? Her most recurrent concern was about the spiritual deterioration that she had witnessed. In her lifetime. Now that we are old, some of us here this evening, we can count on our fingers, ten fingers, the openly Christian MPs in our parliament today. And the times are much, much worse with all manner 
of advanced iniquity. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and following, you know it well, where the apostle speaks of the people of his day, the Gentile world, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And then that whole catalogue of sins that he, he goes into with respect to those given over to a reprobate mind, filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. What are we to do? Well, here you have it. The prayer of the prophet. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the year. When things become so desperate and things become so dark, he prays in wrath, remember mercy. Calling us, dear friends, to renew our vision of God as holy, yes indeed, as gracious, yes, praise his name, as almighty, we doubt it not. He created the heavens and the earth. So what shall we take from Habakkuk this evening? Well, this amazing confidence in God that finds expression there in verse 13. Looking back to the great works of God. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. Amazing deliverances accomplished by the hand of God. So what must we do? We must rejoice. And as Moses said to the people there at the divided sea, we must go forward. Go forward. Rejoicing in the Lord and calling upon God. With what precious words this prophecy concludes. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Friends, let us learn to do that in unpromising times. And as we do so, let us be praying. O oh Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. And may God have mercy upon us, upon his church, and open the windows of heaven and pour us out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to contain it. Though we be aged, let us hope and let us pray and let us have expectation that God will continue his work in these days.
in which we live.